Hey everybody, welcome to season two of the Compact Nation podcast. This is Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact. And I'm J.R. Jamison, Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact. And I am Andrew Seligson, President of Campus Compact. Awesome. So we ended last season with a semi-regular segment of seeing where in the world Andrew is, kind of a you know, where in the world is Carmen San Diego type game, right? Real relevant pop culture reference. There. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I might be a skip the generation type situation on that. Uh-oh. So where are you? Uh, well, I am now sitting in uh, Campus Compact World Headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, but I'm just back from Columbus, Ohio, where I was with folks at the annual meeting of Ohio Campus Compact and uh, really good conversations, uh, tremendously interesting work happening across that state. So that was a lot of fun. I think a real consciousness among people working in Ohio of the kind of symbolic role that Ohio has come to play in the country and the, the, the way the challenges in communicating across political differences have been intensified given just the focus on Ohio. So. Um, yeah, so really interesting to hear people thinking and talking about that together. And uh, was uh, have been at a few other interesting gatherings recently. One was out in Chicago, the Fetzer Institute, which is a foundation in Michigan. They have launched an initiative called Healing the Heart of American Democracy. And they brought some some folks together from other foundations and action-oriented groups like us to think together about how that work might be advanced in higher education. So that was uh, really interesting. And then was before that out at the Kettering Foundation in Dayton. And I think many people are familiar with them as an organization that is really focused on advancing research and understanding around deliberative capacity and, and other citizenship skills. And this was a gathering of college and university presidents who are really interested in kind of reactivating the, the public voice of, of college presidents as uh, sort of public philosophers in the context of democratic citizenship and democratic life. So that was a really interesting meeting. And, and it's really oriented toward thinking about some action steps the group can take together to move that work forward. So that's a little bit about my recent travels. Well, that all sounds really exciting. Um, We wanted to start this second season by just filling everybody in on some changes we're making, uh, hopefully for the better, with the podcast. And the first is that there's just going to be more, more podcasts, more of us in your earbuds. I know everybody's really excited about that. We are stepping up our game, and we'll have two podcast episodes every month where we will interview different guests, continuing our usual format. Um, but we also are adding some hosts to the mix. So, JR, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So we're going to bring in guest hosts where we've asked other state directors, our colleagues, if they would like to join our team. And a few of them have said yes. So we're going to train them later this month. That will be behind the scenes. And we'll start to plug some of them throughout the next year in season two. They'll fill in for us uh, during some of the recordings. They'll sit in on some of the trio conversations that we have about our interviewees. And we're just really excited to bring these new voices into the loop. 
yeah, so even more great ideas, great people, in case you get sick of any of the three of our voices, you know, Never. Sometimes, you, sometimes you'll have new ones. <laughs> um, so we're just excited about those things. We have some interviews already lined up. We're going to be talking about culture change, community college engagement, non-traditional students. Um, got a lot of great topics planned for yet this fall. And as always, we want your ideas. Do you want to come on the podcast? Do you have someone you think would be a great interviewee? Uh, we definitely want to hear from you. And as always, we're at podcast at compact.org or on all social media. Just use hashtag CompactNationPod and we will find you and your idea. And just to so, summarize, that's, uh, yeah. that's twice the Compact Nation podcast for the same low price. For the same <laughs> low, low price of of just reviewing and rating us on iTunes, so please, right. please. Show, showing us the love. Yeah. So show us some love as we um, step it up and give you even more great interviewees to hear from. Speaking of interviewees, we are kicking off season two with a bang, in my opinion. Um, I am just so so beyond excited for the interview that I got to do um, this month for today's podcast. I was able to interview retired Senator Tom Harkin. If you're not familiar, um, and if you listen to this podcast, my, my guess is you are, but he served in the United States Senate for 30 years in the House of Representatives for 10 years before that, uh, native Iowan. Um, so he's been a big part of just sort of my journey um, as someone getting involved in politics. Um, got to talk to him a little bit about the fact that I part of where I got my start was as an intern in his Cedar Rapids office, and you'd be hard-pressed to find people involved in politics in Iowa who, who haven't had a Harkin experience at some point in their tenure. Um, the Harkin Steak Fry big event he hosted has uh, brought in presidential candidates for years and years. Um, and he's just really responsible for some pretty remarkable things. I, I would say one of the most notable is being the senator who introduced the Americans with Disabilities Act. And he's been a really strong champion of disabilities, of agriculture, of healthcare, um, just a variety of things. And, and he does talk in the interview a little bit about how he got started and also a little bit about what he's doing now because he's um, started the Harkin Institute at Drake University. And again, in the interview, he's going to talk some about what that um, what that institute does and how he's building his, his legacy in some of these key areas of citizen engagement. So let's go right to that interview and then we'll be back. Senator Tom Harkin, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. We're very excited to have you. Thank you for having me. We will dive right in. So as we discussed, our mission is really to educate students for active citizenship. When you think back on your college education, how do you think it shaped your commitment to public life? Well, uh, it turned out that I started out in engineering to be an engineer at Iowa State. Uh, about, and I was in the Navy ROTC program too, and I always wanted to be a pilot, fly, and be a Navy Navy pilot. So I, I really wasn't geared towards politics. But uh, halfway through, President Kennedy got elected, and he was young and vibrant, and uh, 
you know, ask not what your country can do for you, mm-hmm. but what you can do for your country. And all of a sudden I got kind of thinking, maybe I should try something else. And then I had a history professor who ran for the U.S. Senate in 1962. And I really liked him, E.B. Smith. And so I went to work on his campaign. Uh, I'd taken a couple of courses in, I guess, economics or something like that. So then I transferred out of engineering into political science and economics. That campaign for the Senate uh, really, I think, got me moving towards public service and thinking about public service rather than something else. In 1968, uh, Robert Kennedy gets assassinated. And then Martin Luther King Jr. gets assassinated. I mean, within a couple of months of each other. Right. I mean, this was just, I mean, very turbulent. And then a lot of, a lot of civil rights leaders were getting beat up. Um, and, um, it, it just, well, again, it was just a very contentious time. Um, and then that led, uh, to George McGovern getting the nomination in 1972. That led then to the Watergate and that led to the resignation of Richard Nixon. Right. So that whole time from about 68 through 1973, 74 was turbulent in America. That's a long period of time. Long period of time. Well, you see, five, five or six years almost of, yeah. of just nonstop um, turbulence and political and assassinations and, uh, uh, you know, uh, anti-war protests, uh, bombings, uh, uh, you know, just anyway. But then after that... Um, uh, settled down, and that's what got that's what got me elected. Congress was Watergate, <laughs> uh, and that in 1974. So again, I, I think about that time. I think about today, and you know, things are turbulent again right now with Trump being in office and all that. But I, I think we'll get through it. The, the only thing that's different now, and I don't know how to calculate this, and that's social media. Uh, the tweets and the Facebooks and the move towards news coming from so many different right. sources and people going online and reading Breitbart or all this other stuff and thinking it's factual. Right. That's disturbing. Now, we didn't have that in that time. We had the legitimate news organizations, CBS, NBC, ABC. We had the newspapers. I mean, just think, at that time, the Des Moines Register was a statewide newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> and we had the Cedar Rapids Gazette. We had, we had good newspapers in Iowa, good newspapers. But we didn't have that. We didn't have all this, um, uh, what, what should I say, uh, sources of, of news that had no real basis, in fact. Yeah. And that's what's different today. Well, that kind of leads me to my next question. You served as a U.S. Senator for quite a while, and over that time, communication changed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. How did that impact you know, you receiving constituent feedback and information? How did you really see that change over time, and how did that affect your role? When I first started in the House 10 years, then 30 years in the Senate, 
uh, I had a lot of town meetings in Iowa. I would come home on a break and we would do town meetings all over the state. And we had great turnouts. I mean, we had hundreds of people would turn out to these right. town meetings. It was good give and take. And uh, as we got into the 90s and then into the aughts, in the 2000 yep. on up to 2014, you can't get people out to town meetings anymore. Hmm. They've got They've got their... They've got their iPads and their iPods and their computers and and they listen to radio and a lot of talk radio. We didn't have much talk radio in those days. But then all of a sudden in the late 90s and the 2000s, uh, talk radio became a big deal. Uh, and so people don't, they don't come out to meet their congressman and senator like they used to. So I didn't, you start losing that kind of personal contact that you had before okay. with people and everything is sort of done from a distance. Um, and that's sort of, to me, that's very sad. Yeah. Very sad. Uh, uh, it's just, uh, and then, um, as I said, with all the various inputs of news now, that's literally not legitimate, but people read it. And they tend to believe it, and that's that's what's kind of frightening. Yeah, do you? I mean, it does seem maybe in the last six months that people might be kind of reinvigorated to show up to those. Well, I sure hope so. I, I, I'm, watch, I'm watching this this our revolution. That kind of, I see a lot of people now coming out that had not been coming out before, and that would be healthy. You know, the best thing we could ever do in America is if we could get eighty percent. The 90% of our people who are eligible to vote to actually vote. Yep. If that, it would change the face of America. Yes. Because I, I think I know from my history and, and serving in Congress and representing Iowa that, 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 that people want the country to move in, in, a, in a direction that it's not going in right now. Yeah. In terms of the economy. Uh, in terms of social services, uh, uh, in terms of uh, community, uh, everything is being atomized, broken down into little parts. And uh, uh, that's not what people want in this country. They want some more of a, of a cohesiveness. Yeah. So you must talk to people all the time about whether or not they should run for office. Mm -hmm. We've seen, you know, our we're trying to educate the next generation to want to be involved. And we see conflicting reports, some showing millennials are getting more likely and interested, many showing that they are just not interested in running for office at all. What do you what do you say to that? How do you talk to people about whether that's something they should do? Well, I always try to encourage young people to run for office. People who've worked for me, staff. In the past, others, in fact, I have, I think a couple of, I have, I know of two former staff of mine that are running for Congress this year. Yeah. One in Iowa and one in California. <laughs> um, uh, so that's encouraging. And these are both young people. Um, but you're right. I, 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 having been out now for a couple of years and I meet here at Drake students, uh, they're interested in public policy, they're just not interested in running for office. Right. And I think they just see the terrible things that come out 
when you're campaigning. And, and it's gotten to the point where negative campaigning, uh, excuse the phrase, trumps <laughs> uh, anything positive. Now, look, in my history, going back for 40, almost 50 years now, there was always a little bit of negative stuff. Not very. It, it was. Yeah. It wasn't like it is now. I mean, they go after your character now. In those days, negative campaigning was my opponent voted for this, yeah. or my opponent uh, uh, voted for that, or something like that. Now it goes more to whether you're a good person or a bad person, and uh, and um, it, it's just not healthy. So I think a lot of young people are looking at that and saying, why should I expose myself to that? And and uh, it's, it's kind of a, uh, it costs a lot of money to run for office now. It didn't when I first started, but everything costs a lot of money now for just to run for office. And it takes a lot of time. And that's the other thing I tell young people that are thinking about it. Believe me, I, I never realized, I have to tell you this, until I retired from the Senate, and I'd been out for about a year. I never realized how busy I'd been. <laughs> you never knew anything else. <laughs> well, because that's all I'd ever done for yeah. 40 years. And you get you get into that. And you think that's life. And it is. I mean, I'm just, it, once you get into politics and you have to do all this, and if you've got a family, and I had a working spouse, so we shared those kinds of responsibilities. Um it's, it's all, it, it is consuming. It takes a lot of time. Um, and you have to be ready for that. And I think a lot of young people say, well, you know, I, I might want to take some time and do other things and be involved in other yeah. things. That's fair. So I, I can understand it. But I always tell them, and I said this in my farewell speech in the Senate, I said, you know, I said something about the Senate being, it's not broken, but it's dented and banged up a little bit. <laughs> Uh, but I said, nowhere, nowhere else can a singular person, I think I said both the Senate and the House or the Congress, no, no other place can a singular person do more good for his or her state and country or more harm <laughs> than in the House and in the Senate. You can have a big impact. And, and I see that in state legislatures, too. A state legislator can do a lot for the state. And I don't think we're focusing enough on state legislatures. We need to focus more. Yeah, not everything. There are lots of offices to run for. You know, not everything is the is the highest level. And I think just things like city council. I, I, I've said this so many times over the years, the most important election, probably the people that we have in America, is your election for school board. Mm-hmm. I don't know, 10% of the eligible voters ever vote oh, in a school board. If that, right? And what happens is you get someone running for school board that is upset because the football team did something. They're the coach or they got some issue. And they get enough people behind them, they get on the school board. But they're not really thinking about the broader concept of public education and what our schools need to do. Um, I think I just school board is so vitally important. And... And, and just county offices um, and state legislature. State legislatures are extremely important. Absolutely. Well, you have 
done a lot of good in your tenure. I, you've been a great champion on a lot of issues, uh, disabilities, many others. One, another one that we talked about a little bit is is AmeriCorps. You've mm-hmm. been an amazing champion of that. Your advocacy has uh, saved it many times. Why have you advocated for those kind of national pro- service programs? <laughs> because, and here I, I, I always got in trouble with this, but I still believe it. Uh, I've seen it in other countries. Um, I believe that your birthright in America or your naturalization right, if you're an immigrant and you are become a naturalized citizen, that you owe something back to society in some way. One of the ways you can do, I felt so strongly about is two years of public service that maybe doesn't pay well, <laughs> and you can pick and choose. You can go in the military, or you can go, see, you have to remember, I grew up, I grew up when there was a draft, right? Yeah. I wasn't drafted, but I went into the service, but there was a draft at that time. Uh, uh, but I've always believed that, because when you're young, look, you go to college, you get through college, and you want to take a little time and do things yep. and that kind of stuff. What better than to spend a couple of years in service to your country? Uh, and pick and choose. You can, there's a lot of different things you can you can choose to do. Or you can do Peace Corps, you can do military, you can do VISTA. And there's all kinds of things under VISTA that you can do in America. Um, and again, it gives you a sense that you, because of your birthright, you owe something. You owe something to your country. And I believe in doing it at that point in your life gives you a sense of what I was talking earlier about this community, this sense of cohesiveness that that a lot of people lack uh, growing up. Uh, in the past, when we had the draft, a lot of people went in the military. To be, you would be you would be in in the draft. You'd be someone from Appalachia sitting next to someone from Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I, you, you had this blending of people. That's what I see this AmeriCorps doing too. You can get a blending of different people yeah. and a sense that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that of, of this community, that America is a community. So I do. I, I think we ought to have a requirement for two years of national service. Well, I love it. I did AmeriCorps VISTA. Oh, you did? Yep, certainly inspired by your efforts. (laughs) I served a year after college. It was a powerful experience for me. I have never, in all my years, talked to an AmeriCorps volunteer later on in life who said they didn't enjoy it, who said they didn't learn something, who didn't benefit from it. Absolutely. Everyone I've ever talked to, without exception, I can't think of one person that said, Oh, I wasted two years in America or something. I, I, I've never heard that. Agree. I agree. So several years ago, you decided to start the Harkin Institute mm-hmm. for Public Policy and Citizen Engagement here at Drake University in Des Moines. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about the mission of the Institute and, and, and why you wanted this to be part of your legacy. Well, um, first of all, I want some place to put all my papers <laughs> for research. Absolutely. And um, and uh, after all, there's like 40 years of that. And uh, I've been involved in some pretty important debates and legislation over the years. And uh, I, thought, I thought a university would be the best place for that. 
where students and researchers could have access and find things that I probably don't even know I did <laughs> or, or how things happened. Uh, and so Drake uh, seemed to me a great place to do that. It's in the capital city. It's a small university. Um, and um, so it's just, so we made an agreement to leave all my papers here. Drake hired a, a wonderful archivist, uh, Hope Grabner, who since gotten married now, her name is Hope Grabner Bivens. But anyway, <laughs> she's a great uh, archivist. And so um, then I thought, well, we want an institute. Some people talked to me about this, about an institute that would sort of carry on my legacy in certain areas. Disability policy, yep. uh, health, wellness, and nutrition, um, labor, because um, I had been a big proponent of organized labor and labor unions, that type of thing. Uh, uh, and that, that sort of labor and retirement. I, before I left the Senate, I had introduced legislation to change our retirement system in America. Mm -hmm. And I've had hearings on that. I've been involved in it. I've been involved with the Aspen Institute, uh, think tanks on this. And so that's another part of the legacy that I wanted to continue to work on right. uh, in a nonpartisan type of way. And then uh, the last being uh, uh, agriculture. Absolutely. What we're doing in agriculture in yep. rural America. So those are the, kind of the four different elements of the institute, and uh, and so we're, we have we've got some wonderful contributors and an endowment set up and uh, staff. So right now, uh, the institute has sponsored something called the Harkin Summit. We had the first one last year. The second one will be this year in 2017. It's the international, and you can Google it, harkinsummit.org. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's an international conference on employment of people with disabilities. So I've decided that in the disability area, I'm going to focus pretty narrowly just on employment in the private sector of people right. with disabilities. Well, it's a great area of need. Hmm? It's a great area of need. Oh, yes. And, and well, don't get me started on that. <laughs> Okay. I can take a whole interview on that one. <laughs> All right. Uh, because, oh, gee. Anyway, so that's going. And the second one, as I said, this year, we had 30 countries last year. We'll have more this year. Uh, so it's an international conference. We just got a grant to set up our um, uh, health, wellness, and nutrition part of, our, of the institute. Okay. Which will be looking at prevention and wellness because I had been involved in that yep. aspect for a long time. Uh, retirement, uh, we're s just starting on that, that and some things on agriculture. Okay. So the reason for it is to, because I feel strong that these are areas that it's not over and done with. Yeah. These are going to be evolving as we go into the future and new ways of addressing these issues and problems. Uh, and uh, I want an institute that could do serious research publish papers, sponsor symposiums, bring together different elements to talk about these issues, uh, and um, and uh, yeah, just be that kind of source of, of information, research, um, and public policy. Absolutely. So our audience is, 
colleges and universities, largely, you know, our listeners are staff, faculty, Mm -hmm. administrators who are trying to build ways to engage with community, ways to educate uh, students for their role as active citizens. What do you think colleges and universities should be doing to support those efforts? Well, maybe campus compact. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) Uh, uh, Yes. Uh, I think universities, uh, uh, again, and I'm seeing more of this, I'm about to say, becoming more involved in their communities, right? Uh, both on the local city or whatever city they're in, or and state levels. Uh, I just see more and more of that, and I think that's, that's very healthy. Um, students need to be encouraged, uh, not just to go to the university, but to think about What's in their community? What's their community look like? Uh, you, know, you know, people move a lot in America. We move around yeah. a lot. But when you think about going to college for four years or two years, yep. you're in one place there. That may be as the longest place you stay for the next 10 or 15 years That's of your true. life. That's true. So you have a stake in that community. And you should be involved. And camp, and not camp university administration should be promotive of this on the local level to get students out of the college and into local things. School boards, um, local environmental projects or health projects, uh, um, housing, um, uh, all kinds of needs out there that students could be involved in. I first... I forgot to mention this. When I first went to Iowa State, look, I grew up in a small town in rural Iowa, and uh, I didn't, I didn't know people, I didn't know Jews, I didn't know African Americans, I didn't know people like this. Yeah. I go to Iowa State, and I lived off campus, and I happened to live with a a, a, a guy who, uh, Alan Beckelman, who was Jewish, and he was ahead of me. So I was a freshman. He was now like a junior up at Iowa State. And they had something called SCORE, the Student Committee on Racial Equality. Oh, okay. What's that all about? (laughs) And he was Jewish, but they had been organizing some of the African-American students because African-American students couldn't get off-campus housing in Ames, Iowa. Wow. If they could, it was just slum. Right. Uh, And so I got... All of a sudden, my eyes got open. I never yep. thought about it. So that was community involved. We were getting involved in the community to get the city council of Ames to pass ordinances saying that if you were renting apartments and your basements and things like that to students, you could not discriminate against uh, religion or, right. or, 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 or national race. Yeah. And that was 1959. And you got it done? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, school was great. <laughs> it was a great. I didn't. I didn't have that much to do with it. A lot of people. <laughs> the group got it done. The group got it done. But I'm just saying that's what yep. impressed me when I went to college. I mean, yeah. they weren't just studying at the university. They were doing something locally. Yeah. Right then. Yes. That's certainly what we're trying to encourage. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. So just. As we close out, I want to bring it back around to the current moment in our country because you you kind of touched on feeling maybe hopeful for the future, but having some concerns. You know, if, if, if people listening are trying to get people engaged, want to make things better, 
what can what can we do? What do you think would move us forward? Well, that's a tough question. You must get it a lot. I days. get it a lot, and I think about it a lot. Um, I, I think there are. I I really believe that there are more young people of 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 what of goodwill of moderate nature, compassionate, caring, than there are those that are closed-minded and, 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 uh, and against uh, sort of a community involvement. That, right. But the good people don't ever get organized. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they just don't pull themselves together in any kind of cohesive faction, uh, fashion. Uh, so that's that's what we need. We need not one, but we need a, a multiplicity of different groupings of people uh, to multiply the power of youth. Young people can do a lot of stuff in our society. Yeah. They just need some leadership and they need some organization to make their impact felt. I will tell you one thing, and, and this is very disturbing to me. Okay, I ran in 1972 and I lost, but I had I had three big campuses in this congressional district. I had Iowa State, mm -hmm. Simpson College, Graceland College. Well, then we had the community college, but they weren't very big at that time. They right. just they had just kind of started. Right, up. just getting off the ground. So I had those three universities, and then we had um, later on a couple of, but those three. I can tell you that in 1974, 72, and in 74, students stood in line for hours to vote. Wow. Because of the Vietnam War, because of the draft, and they wanted to end the Vietnam War, and students were, we ran our whole campaign on students. Our campaign office was right off the right off the campus of Iowa State. My campaign manager was a professor at Iowa State. <laughs> All the people that worked on my campaign were students. It was a student-run campaign. Wow. I can tell you that in 76 it dwindled, and then 78, 80, it's like pulling teeth now to get students to vote. It's an ah. uphill climb. Hmm? It's an uphill climb. It's an uphill climb. In those days, students, as I said, I can remember students standing in line, hours to vote. Well, that had, there was another problem. That was getting more voting booths on the campus yeah. at that time. Yeah. Still uh, an issue. Is it still an issue? <laughs> Sometimes. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, well, it was an issue then, I remember. And then it got solved. But still, I mean, students ought to be, they ought to be involved politically, and they ought to be involved uh, certainly in elections. But that's why I say we, 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 need, we need to have that focus. Uh, I wish I had a magic answer for you. I wish I had some simple one sentence thing that would solve it all. I don't. I don't. Uh, I know students are bombarded with all kinds of things. First of all, student debt. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing. You want to get students more involved? <laughs> I guess I have to work. Some. Make college free. Make college free. And um, and put some limits. If it's going to be free, then you have to put some limits on how much they can raise tuition every year mm -hmm. by a certain factor. Um, I, mean, I I got out of Iowa State. I think I had maybe, oh, I don't know, 
I had a few hundred dollars in debt. <laughs> a few hundred dollars. <laughs> take that. <laughs> Look, I keep saying what what benefited what I had in those days as a student, students should have today. And here's the, here's what we had the Eisenhower program. It was called the National Defense Student Loan Program. We always call it the Eisenhower program because it came in under President Eisenhower. So I went to a window at Iowa State, borrowed money. And uh, here's the deal. You borrowed money right on campus. All the time I was in college, there was no interest charges. No interest. Yep. Right. I got out of college. I went in the Navy for five years. All the time I was in the service, no interest accrual. I got out of the service, went to law school for three years. No interest accrual all the time I'm in graduate school or law school. I get out of law school and there's a one-year grace period before the clock starts ticking on it on interest. So I had what? So I had, let's say I had three years in college. Uh, then I had five, that's eight, 11. I had 12 years of money that no interest, I had paid no interest on it. Yep. And the interest rate when it did start was I think at that time, like one and a half percent. Oh my, <laughs> wow. So I paid it off right away. Yeah. Now, if that was good enough for me in my generation, why isn't it good enough for you and your generation right now? It should be. But I would go even one step further. Now, that program uh, is now called, uh, there's, it still exists, but it's a small part. Right. I couldn't believe it. When I come out of the Navy and I come back and I'm working and I go, to, I go back and I go to law school, and I come out and run for office, I find out. That, is, that program has been supplanted by a loan program that goes through the banks. I couldn't believe it. Congress had done that. So now you go to the bank and you get the loan. They let the bank service it. Banks make money. It was a great program for the banks to make money. And this Eisenhower Pro National Defense Student Loan Program it still exists. It's called something else. I'm sorry. I can't remember. That's all right. Look it up. It's a small thing now, but here's the other thing. Here's the other good thing. When I borrowed money from Iowa State through this program and I paid the money back, guess to whom I paid it? Iowa State. Yeah. Now, a student borrows money from the XYZ bank, yeah. and then that bank sells that paper to somebody else. And that's I know my daughter borrowed some money when she was in law school. And... That paper got sold three times. Yeah, I think mine got sold about six. <laughs> three times. And she was paying money to some place in Seattle, Washington. Yeah. And, you know, and that's why there's a lot of reasons for student defaults. I think one of the reasons is students are paying that money to someone, and I don't know anyone in Seattle, but if it's your alma mater and it's your university that you went to, that's a, you have some strong feelings about psychological that. Psychological difference there. Yes, yeah. big psychological difference there. So students are burdened by too much debt today. And so I've even taken a step further. We need the old Eisenhower type program. If it was good enough, why isn't it good enough for students today? I keep asking that question. Uh, and secondly, uh, just, and I think Bernie Sanders in his campaign was probably the first to really take this nationally. We as a nation agreed a long time ago that it was necessary for kids to finish high school, so we made high school free. Right. 
Well, I think it's true now for community colleges and four-year colleges. You've got to have that. So why not make college free? It should be. I'll go one step further. If you really want to, this maybe is not apropos of this interview, but <laughs> if you really want to move the economy of America and reduce inequality, I have advocated that the federal government should pick up all the student debt that's out there, that's <laughs> trillion dollars, more than all of the credit card debt in America, pick it all up and pay it. Absolve every student of every loan and every debt they have. Now, what would happen if that happened? All of a sudden, young people have money to buy a house. Yeah. They have money to start a small business. They have money to uh, um, do some entrepreneurial type work or maybe, to, you see what I'm saying? Goes all right the, back into the economy. All of a sudden, now you've got money coming into the system rather than going to the financial institutions and stuff. Now, people say, well, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of money, about a trillion dollars. Yeah, but I think it would be one of the biggest stimuluses, that economic stimulus that our country could do today. And then, but you'd have to do that. Then a lot of students would say, well, I paid off my debt. Yeah. And that person gets, well, okay, all right, fine, I got it. But students could say about me today, Harkin, you went to school, you borrowed money at one and a half percent, no interest for 11 years. Yeah. Well, How come you get it and I don't get it? <laughs> you know? True. True. So anyway, I got far afield on that, but your question was about getting students involved or something like that. Was yeah, that, yeah. Was, what, what can, well, well, what, how hopeful, what, what can people do in general if they don't like how our democracy is functioning right now? Well, get involved. You just... <laughs> have to get out of your out of your what am I trying your shell your sector here <laughs> comfort zone yeah, yeah that's that that's where <laughs> you have to get out of your comfort zone and and uh, and get involved in in campaigns get involved in referendums um, and I see some of that happening today and I think uh, perhaps this Trump in the White House is stimulating some of that but I do see now a little bit more of that. I think, I think people, a lot of young people, especially, probably thought someone like Trump that it was never going to happen, but it did happen. Yeah. And uh, and so now I think uh, uh, people now will start to come out of their comfort zone and spend some time on these on these campaigns and issues. Uh, at least that's my hope, anyway. Yeah. Well, that's a good note to end on, I think. Senator Harkin, it is a, truly an honor for me, especially, to get to sit down with you like this. Well, I, you're, I, we, we talked about my part of my career started right. as, as one of your interns. Amazing. As, as I'm sure there are, I think, hundreds of well, Let me of ask you, why did you do that? Stuff. What was your major? What were you major? I started out as a journalism major. Okay. And then I added political science after uh, I know exactly what it was because I took a class called the Politics of Education. And I kind of like you. I mean, I grew up in Cedar Rapids where there was a little more diversity, but I hadn't really been exposed to much. Yeah. Um, read a book, uh, Savage Inequalities. Oh, and one of my favorite books. Yeah. It just Jonathan, sort of, Jonathan, Jonathan Coble. Coble. Oh, yes. It just sort of changed everything for me because uh -huh. I didn't really 
even know some of that was happening. And I didn't know how much the political system impacted that. And it really opened my eyes. And I volunteered on Tom Vilsack's oh, yeah, sure. campaign in 98 and yeah, then yeah. interned in your office in right. Cedar Rapids, went out to D.C. for a summer. Oh, my gosh. Um, Were you at the in DCCC? my office? No, I wasn't oh, at your okay. office. I did the DCCC that summer in the okay. summer of 2000. Okay. All right. And yes. uh, yeah, just kind of kind of went from there. And now I feel like it with this job, it all kind of comes full circle for sure. me because um, that happened for me in college, mm-hmm. and I want to make that happen for other people uh, to to kind of find your your spark, your thing that makes you find a reason to get involved in your community, something to care about. So well, I'm glad that Kozel's book uh, motivated <laughs> you because I I love Jonathan Kozel. Uh, that book also changed me a lot. I read that and I said, you know, this guy is absolutely right in what he's saying and how we fund schools. And because of that book, I took off in the 90s on my committee on education, kept quoting it, citing it, and talking about why why should the quality of your education depend on where you were born and raised? Right. If you're in a poor area, low property taxes, you got a bad school. Yeah. Why, why, why should you be? No. So and I, I, you'll like this. So one time Jonathan Kozel was asked about being, uh, would he ever be secretary of education? And he said, oh, no, that'll never happen unless Tom Harkin gets elected president. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I wish both of those things had happened. <laughs> so, so uh, gosh, I've lost touch with Jonathan. I got to get. I just kind of lost touch with him. Well, get yeah. back in touch and tell uh, him he, he's a great guy. Tell him he changed my life. Mine, I will. That, that's that's very good. The Savage inequalities is my sort of my education bible forever. Welcome back, everybody, from uh, my really interesting interview with Senator Tom Harkin. As you could hear, I'm a big fan. Uh, I about lost it when, you know, I, I bring up Savage Inequalities by Jonathan Kozel and he just says, oh, you know, I I wonder what Jonathan's up to. It's been a while since I've talked to him. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, a lot in common there in terms of, of things that we care about. But I don't know what stood out to you guys. I think for me, a more one of the more interesting things he had to say was just around the question of what we could do to get more students engaged in our communities and the idea that free tuition or perhaps somehow reducing that burden would make an impact on that. I wondered what your reaction was to that and what you think about that idea. Well, I know, you know, in my experience working with students, the, the it was very clear when, you know, I worked in institutions where Many of the students were quite privileged and did not have to work to finance their college educations. I worked in institutions where that was not at all the case. The vast majority of students had paid jobs. And it, it, I think it, it makes a ton of sense to say that the, the economic circumstances of students have a good bit to do with how much they can become, how much they, time they can give over. One of the things when I was working at Rutgers Camden, prim, primarily a commuter campus, I always thought about how to avoid making community and civic engagement a third thing for students. So they need to have credit-bearing courses, they need to have paid jobs. How can we ensure that there are community and civic engagement opportunities that are integrated into credit-bearing courses and paid jobs 
so that students don't have to make impossible choices. So I, that made a lot of sense to me. And I, you know, I was thinking as he was talking about that of the recent research showing that, you know, high proportions of college students are facing homelessness or housing insecurity, high proportions facing food insecurity. And yeah, the idea that students can be fully engaged as citizens when they're struggling literally to survive, you know, it, it, we, we do have to view those questions as related. Yeah, I think it is related. I also do know that, you know, there are privileged students who don't volunteer and there are students facing a lot of barriers who who do. So it certainly isn't the only answer, but um, I think anything we can do to give students the freedom to really make choices about how they want to spend their time and how to prepare for their futures makes a difference. So I don't know. What, is, what stood out to you, JR? I would agree. I would say out of the whole conversation, his idea of if we want more students involved to make college free is what what stuck out to me the most. I was just really surprised by, he talked about back in the day that loans were from a campus and that, uh, you know, now that's, that isn't the case. And I just, I couldn't imagine. I'm like, wow, really a loan from an institution of higher education? You know, that wasn't my experience. And just thinking about would that even be possible today? What would that look like? But I definitely think going to his conversation of getting students more involved locally, he talked about the school board, right? And one of the most important offices someone can can run for in their community is the school board. But we don't have that many folks who do. And when we do, we only have 10% turnout. But just imagine how college students could play a role in that if their time were freed up and they were less worried about the financial implications of higher education. So my mind is just really swirling with, with lots of ideas. Uh, it, it left me hopeful for what could come, but I certainly know I, I don't feel like I have the right answer to that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I kind of also to your point, I think he, you know, his answer when I asked about getting young people to run for office was interesting to me too, because I think that it's clear he, you know, valued his experience, wouldn't have made different choices, you know, thinks that that can work. But it's also clear he understands the very real barriers people face to that lifestyle, to taking that on. And and there's not really a great solution for that, or at least not an easy one. Yeah, I was, you know, I thought it was interesting to hear him in that context talking about the kind of poisoned media atmosphere and the illegitimate kinds of personal attacks that people face if they make the decision to go into public life. And again, yeah, the the fact that he recognized, as, as somebody who is very aware of what the levers of government can be moved to accomplish, and he's clearly somebody who believes that our public institutions, if we use them wisely, can do a lot for people, he also seemed to be really aware that these kinds of questions of how you fix a media environment in which falsehoods are being circulated as truths and people have lost confidence in institutions that might help them distinguish truth from falsehood that there's there isn't some easy solution and it's not as if you know what we just need is some clever legislators to figure out a solution to that Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's a lot of different things about changing the system or just getting more people to see the value of taking on those risks i'm not sure um, 
it was a lot of fun to talk to him about national service. I will say that. That's an area where he uh, doesn't seem to have any questions in his mind about about the value or, or how to get that done. And it was just great to hear how much he's seen throughout his career um, about the impact that they can that that can have on people. I would agree. I enjoyed hearing him say that he's not met one person who's an alum of national service who has said that was an awful experience or I wish I wouldn't have done that. And I know that's certainly the case for me as an AmeriCorps alum. And I know, Emily, we've had several conversations about this. You're an alum as well. And that really that experience helped shape who we are as professionals. And I would agree with him. I, you know, I fall in the camp that I think everyone should be required to do some form of of national service. I'd love to see us get there. Yeah. Yeah. It also just reminded me of how important the allies of national service in Congress, those in previous generations uh, and the, you know, current members are to the future of those programs. And I think many people are familiar with the fact that once again this year, there's been a, a tough fight to preserve and protect funding for the Corporation for National and Community Service, continuing to grow uh, opportunities or at least maintain them for national service. And things are, I think, looking pretty good right now. Voices for National Service, the advocacy organization that uh, moves that work forward, has done a great job building relationships on both sides of the aisle. But it is, it's constantly important for all of us to keep letting members of Congress know about the importance of this work so that there are voices like Tom Harkins, uh, again, coming from both sides of the aisle when this comes up every year, uh, you know, when when the funding uh, question is on the table. Yeah, definitely. And it speaks to the importance of sharing your experiences with your elected officials. You know, it's clear that he has listened to those stories, that those stories have made an impression on him. They've impacted the decisions he makes as a policymaker. And I think that's important for people to remember, you know, even when it doesn't feel like that, that that they're listening, especially if you can, you know, tell people things in person. He talked about the importance of town halls and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I I think it's an example of that. JR, I know you don't have much time left for us, so I wonder if we can jump right into to Pop Culture Corner, um, but I know you don't want to go first. <laughs> well, I mean, I can, I can definitely go first. So Emily and I were chatting offline before we, we started recording today, and I said, you know, I feel really boring. I don't have a, a Pop Culture Corner, but we were joking because when we were preparing for today's conversation about Senator Harkin, I, I knew he was a big deal, but in my research, my recent research on him, I realized how big of a deal he was. And one of the first things I said to Emily was, and he was in the movie Dave. And she said he was also one of the main people for the reason why the ADA was passed. And you shouldn't <laughs> be thinking that because he was in Dave, that was the most important thing he's ever done, which I said, yes, touche. You are correct. That is true. But I was so excited that he was in Dave that now... I'm going to have to go to Netflix and download that and watch it just to see, you know, that little cameo appearance by yeah, another another really current and relevant pop culture <laughs> reference. Oh, true, right? Yes, touche again. A what, twenty-year-old movie or more? <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, 1993. Wow. Um, but yes, go watch Dave if you've never <laughs> seen it. Well, well, mine is, you know, it's an exciting time in Iowa right now because Friday is the start of the Iowa State 
there. Uh, it's definitely a favorite time of year for me. And this year I have the added bonus that um, four of my friends from when I, who, who were my roommates when I lived in London after college and now live on the East Coast are coming to visit for the fair. So I'll be shepherding some fair newbies around and there's just nothing better than that. Nice. Are there even fairs in London? I don't know. I guess maybe there are. <laughs> I don't know. Is that is that purely an American thing to have like a yearly I fair? mean, that's probably where it started. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's probably something we adopted from them, but not in the American context, I guess I would say. <laughs> of, of the fried foods and the rice. Of the right, right. I think we probably, you know, just um, made it better, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Deep fried butter. Exactly. I, I grew up uh, with the typical ignorance of a Northeasterner, and I was absolutely convinced that there was no New York State Fair because I'd never heard of it growing up. <laughs> like in sort of the orbit of New York City, it didn't. And I insisted this uh, to various people, most notably, and so I'll never forget about it, to the person that I then chose to spend the rest of my life with. Uh, and she has made fun of me ever since, because of course there's a New York State Fair, it's in Syracuse, et cetera. It's just that like people who live down near New York City don't know about things like that. So yeah, I'm sure it, these things are probably very old and yes, may, may come from the old country, who knows. And so are you telling us now you go to the state fair every year? No, but when I lived in Minnesota <laughs> for 10 years, uh, I did go to the state fair every year. Uh, and, you know, it is a great institution. And, you know, I get, <laughs> Emily and I were talking about this. I, I can't actually compare it to the Iowa State Fair because I've never been to the Iowa State Fair. But one thing I learned in Minnesota is that when you're in Minnesota, you just insist that whatever you have in Minnesota is better than those things in Iowa and Wisconsin. You're, that's the only thing you're yeah. sure about. Mm -hmm. And having never been to another state fair, I am positive that you are wrong and the Iowa State Fair is the best. Yeah, I don't know. Indiana is yeah. pretty great and it's going on this week. My favorite thing in Minnesota, uh, and I don't, we're, we're now down a path, I'm not sure whether we can loop it back, <laughs> but uh, everybody needs to go there. The, the thing you need to do at the Minnesota State Fair is to see the butter sculptures of the finalists for the title of Princess K of the Milky Way. Uh, I I really think you'll never be the same if you. No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but the Iowa butter cow is superior. I, <laughs> I'm just absolutely confident of that fact. What are you saying about the the women of Minnesota who are the finalists for Princess K of the Milky Way? I think they would t would take offense at that. But we had a but we have a butter cow sculptor. She did it for I think like 25 years and then apprenticed a new person. So this is not amateur butter sculpting. This <laughs> no, is no, professional. That, well, this, this is the same thing. There, there's a guy who sits there and the women pose and he um, does their heads in butter. Oh, okay, that makes more sense. I yeah. did hear about both of these things actually on NPR just this past week. And I've heard that the Iowa milk cow butter or whatever you called it, Emily, right? Like those sculptures can weigh up to a thousand pounds. Yeah, and there's a different theme. There's a cow and then a different theme every year. And I'm a bad Iowan because I don't actually know what the theme is this year. Well, that's a um, butter. But I'll be there on Saturday figuring it out. Uh, okay, so we should probably just give our listeners the um, the benefit of not 
having to listen to us talk about state fairs any longer. I've got a uh, a pop culture topic to run. Oh, go for it. Uh, so I this is just recommending a podcast uh, that I just started listening to. So I can only comment on the first episode. It's a new podcast uh, from Radiotopia, which is a kind of you know family of podcasts, and it's called well. So the the overall podcast is called Showcase, but Showcase will be these kind of short seasons of completely separate uh, podcasts or sort of, you know, within it, it's got, you know, it'll be one season of one thing, then they just move on to something new. And the first uh, kind of series is called Ways of Hearing. And it's about how our experience of listening and audio has changed from analog to digital media. And what is intriguing, so on the one hand, it's just interesting on the face of it. It's by a guy whose name I can't even remember, but he was in the band Galaxy 500, and he's just recently written a book about this topic. And so it's just interesting on the face of it to think about these things. And he knows a lot about music technology and recording technology. But in particular, one of the things he hints at in the first installment is that he's going to work his way to connecting these issues about technological change in sound to these questions about why we're having so much trouble listening to and hearing each other in our public world. I have no idea how he's going to make those connections based on what happened in the first one, but it was really interesting, and so I'm excited. It's just a six-episode set, and uh, so I'm interested to see where it goes, and I, I recommend it to others. Sounds intriguing. Sounds fantastic, yeah. Well, we'll check it out. Um, thanks for that recommendation. So... Based on what we said at the beginning of the episode, you, we will be back in just two short weeks. Our plan going forward is to release episodes on the second and fourth Wednesdays of each month. Lucky for us, August actually has five Wednesdays. So we'll be back on the last one and we'll see you every two weeks from there. So thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Let us know who you think we should interview. And we will see you soon. Compact Nation is produced by Naval Mahdi at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, on behalf of Campus Compact and its network of 1,100 colleges and universities across the United States. To learn more about Campus Compact, check it out online at compact.org. Hey Habiba, what does a pig think of the Compact Nation podcast? 